Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Every one of us probably has a great story we can tell about how we got a scar. I will tell you a story about a fifth grade young boy who was pretty stupid, that being myself. We went camping on a farm out in Texas as a bunch of fifth grade little boys, and we were playing what fifth grade boys probably played in the early 80s. It was probably A-Team or Dukes of Hazard or something like that. We were running around, and they must have been doing some type of construction work because there was this rebar wire that was all mangled up in a, in a pile, and it was very sharp, and it was rusty, and, and I had kind of dodged it a few times before, but in the middle of the night, we snuck out, and we're running around, and guess what happens? I trip, I fall, and about three inches of that wire goes directly into my leg. And I scream and I yell and I have to be taken to the emergency room and get a tetanus shot and have stitches, and I've got a scar to this day to prove it. I'm not going to show you my scar this morning, but I'm sure a lot of you here this morning have a scar, a physical scar, either from being stupid like I was as a fifth grader, or maybe from a procedure, or maybe from an operation physical scars. But there may be some of you that have come in here this morning with different types of scars. Maybe an emotional scar, maybe a spiritual scar. Maybe you've been wounded by someone that you trusted. Maybe you've just been beaten up by this world. Maybe you've come into this place with disappointments, with discouragements, with, with hurt in your life. And we all know deep down in our hearts that this world is broken, don't we? We know that there's something not right in this world. That this world is not working the way it's supposed to work. That, that there's fractured relationships. There's disappointments. There's discouragements. And we have to ask the question, why is this world so painful? Why, why are we left with scars? Why? Well, it all started back in a garden. You probably know the story. God created the world. And he saw that it was very good. And he put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, You're free to eat of every tree of this garden, but the one tree. You're forbidden to eat from that tree. And we know what Adam and Eve did. They rebelled against God. They, they, did, they defied God. They went and they ate the fruit anyway. And what happened? There was a fracture and they died. Yes, they did. Spiritual death. There was a fracturing. There was guilt. There was a brokenness. And you see, what did Adam do? Adam blamed God. Eve blamed the serpent. They blamed each other. And so they stood there guilty, naked, and broken, fractured in their relationship with each other. And more importantly, they were guilty, broken, and fractured in their relationship with their Creator. And that's why there's scars. That's why there's problems. That's why there's brokenness. All of us who are born in this world are, are a result of Adam and Eve's sin. We come into this broken world. And so we have to ask the question, is that all there is? Is life just one big cosmic football game where you get beat up, you get pounced on, and then you die? And that's it. Or is there hope? Is there hope in this world? Yes, that's what Resurrection Sunday is all about. It's about the hope 
of Easter. It's about the hope of Jesus Christ to restore us back into a right relationship with our Creator, about Jesus to bring redemption, Jesus to fix the problem in this broken world. So where do we look for this hope? If you're like most people, most people look for this hope within themselves. Let's just grin our, grit our teeth and bear it. Let's just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Let's just try to become spiritual or try to do something to fix the problem. And that's very prevalent here in northeastern Colorado. God helps them who help themselves, right? We don't need any help. We just fix our own problems. But you see, that's a result of the fall itself, trying to fix our own problems by looking inward. What can I do to affect this change? But for this Resurrection Sunday, I don't want us to look inside of ourselves. That's a very scary place to look. I want us to look inside of ourselves. I want us to look outside of ourselves at Jesus. Jesus on the cross. I want us to look at those final moments there when Jesus is hanging on the cross, and I want us to see what did people think of Jesus? What were people's opinions of Jesus in his final hours there on the cross? And that's a great question for you this morning. What's your opinion of Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? You know, our culture is fascinated with Jesus. You've seen those t-shirts, right? That Pamela Anderson and Brad Pitt and, and other people wear. Madonna, what does it say? Jesus is my homeboy. Hopefully you don't own that shirt. There's been over a hundred different movies talking about Jesus, the passion of the Christ, the Da Vinci Code. You've maybe seen the movie Talladega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby, where he prays to the little plastic statue, Jesus, in a very disrespectful way. One of the worst television shows on TV. I've never seen it. I hope you don't watch it. It's the family guy. From what I understand, the family guy takes portrayals of Jesus and makes him out to be some type of, of traveling genie that just parties with his disciples. Everyone seems to be talking about Jesus. It's in music, right? Carrie Underwood, Jesus Take the Wheel. Kanye West, Jesus Walks, U2, the most powerful, popular band in the world, still sing songs about Jesus. If you do a Google search on Jesus, guess how many results you're going to find? Anybody want to guess? 824 million hits. I could go on and on about what our culture thinks about Jesus, but that's not helpful to any of us. What I want us to do is I want us to go to the scriptures and see how those that surrounded Jesus looked at him, and more in particular, one specific person. And I want us to see how this gives us hope for this Easter Sunday. Let me set the stage for you and Luke. Jesus has been arrested. Jesus has been tried. Jesus has been sentenced to death by Pilate, and they're leading him out to the cross. And that's where we're going to pick up is Jesus being crucified on the cross. So let's pick up there in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32. Luke 23, starting in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
and they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, for if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Jesus is being led up to the place called the skull. In Latin, it's where we get our word Calvary, Mount Calvary. And as Jesus is going up to be crucified, we know the story. He has two thieves on both sides. And they're casting lots below for his garments. This is in fulfillment of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is an Old Testament picture of what Jesus was going to suffer. And so I want us to look at the responses of those people that were there at the crucifixion. The first group of people we see are the rulers. What does it say about the rulers? If you look there, verse 35, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed. They scoffed at Jesus. They, they turned up their noses at Jesus. They sneered at Jesus. They made fun of Jesus. Psalm 22, 7, a fulfillment of this says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They're making fun of Jesus. Now, I'm not here to pick on Red Bull energy drink, but they've gotten into a lot of hot water recently for a commercial that they've had with Jesus. I don't know if you've seen it. I have not seen it, but I've heard about it. Jesus is on this fishing boat with his disciples, and he basically says in this commercial, this cartoon, well, guys, there's nothing to do here. I'm out of here. He gets up and walks across water and leaves. And Peter and the disciples are, are really amazed that Jesus can walk on water. And so Peter looks at one of the other disciples and says, well, how did Jesus do this? And the other disciple says, well, he drinks Red Bull. He's got wings. And then Jesus comes back and says, no, it's not Red Bull. You've just got to be smart enough to know where the rocks are to step on. Now, at first glance, it seems like a very funny little cartoon depicting Jesus. But when you look at it from a deeper level, it really shows Jesus as this snarky smart aleck, and it diminishes the glory and the majesty of Christ. And so our culture wants to demean Christ. They want to sneer at Christ. They want to make fun of Christ. And that's what the rulers did. Well, look at the Roman soldiers. They mocked him. Verse 36, the soldiers mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. Now, that was a, that was a way of making fun of Jesus. Sour wine, cheap wine. Nobody would want to drink this wine. It was basically a way of, of making fun of Jesus, to, to cut him down, to humiliate him. 
And think about it here. They didn't understand why Jesus was dying on this cross. It was an act of humiliation. In that culture, the cross was reserved for the lowest of low. Only the scum of the earth were crucified on crosses. If you were a criminal, if you were a slave, if you were the worst of society, you died on a cross. And it didn't make sense to them because here's this sign above Jesus that says, King of the Jews. Why would a king be dying naked humiliated on a cross. It's foolishness. It doesn't make sense. It's actually moronic. And Paul says that. Paul says the cross is moronic. It's foolish. 1 Corinthians 1.18, listen to what Paul says about the cross. For the word of the cross is folly. That word in the original language, folly, means moronic. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So the rulers are sneering Jesus. The soldiers are mocking him. How about one of the thieves that's there? In verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Railed at him. It's the, it's the Greek word blasphemeo, where we get the word blasphemy. Basically, he was cussing Jesus out. He was taking all the responses up to that point and throwing it back in Jesus' face, saying, Jesus, if you really are this Christ, then save yourself and save me. He didn't care who Jesus was. He basically had this foxhole-type religion of, of, I don't care who you are, Jesus, but uh, evidently you're, you're some great king, you're some great guy. Why are you hanging here on this cross? Why don't you save yourself? He's basically cussing Jesus out. And so these are the responses of some people that were there at the cross. But for most of our time this morning, I want us to look at the other criminal, one who's fondly referred to as the penitent thief on the cross. And what we will see from the thief on the cross is a man who understands the love of God and the power of Christ. J.C. Ryle was a bishop in England during the 1800s, and he said this, and I think it gives us great wisdom. He says this about the thief on the cross story. One thief was saved that no sinner might despair, but only one that no sinner might presume. Did you hear that? The thief on the cross was there so that no sinner might despair. Let me, let me just take a little object lesson here. What would happen this morning if up on these two screens... All the sins you've ever done in your life are projected up there for everyone in this room to see. Most of us would what? Want to run in a corner, hide, leave town, never show up again, right? Don't worry, that's not going to happen. We don't have the technology to do that. But let's take it one step further. Not only just your bad deeds, but think about your thoughts. Every thought that you've ever had was projected up here for everyone to see. The guilt, the shame, the dread you would experience. And we think about our sin. And the thief on the cross says this. There's not one sinner in this room today that's beyond the reach of God's grace. You may have come into this place thinking, I've done the worst of things. I've committed the grossest acts of blasphemy. And if everything that was put up on the screen were to be shown, I could never show my face in this world again. The thief on the cross gives you hope this morning that you can be saved by God's grace. Listen to Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, 
he, speaking of Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. But remember what J.C. Ryle said, one thief was saved so that we might not despair, but only one that we might not presume. There was only one thief that was saved that day. The other one did what? Rejected Christ. Railed at Christ. And so the message of the thief on the cross is a message of hope that you can be saved, the worst of sinners, but it's also a message of warning that don't leave this place rejecting Jesus the way that the other thief did. Don't just presume upon God that you're okay. A lot of people think, well, I'm okay with God. I, I go to church a little bit. I try to be a good person. I try to, uh, to obey the rules. I'm pretty much a, a spiritual person. I'm okay. Don't presume upon your okayness with God. One thief trusted in Christ. The other thief rejected Christ. Now let's look at seven amazing things that we see about the thief on the cross. These things excite me because when I think about the thief on the cross, I think about a man that God saved who was the worst of sinners, and we see ourselves in this thief. So let's look at seven things about the thief on the cross. First of all, he understood the holiness of God. Look at verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Do you not fear God? This thief understood that God is to be feared. That's where the beginning of wisdom comes in fearing God. Job 28, 28, he said to the man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. And so the thief understood that God is a God to be feared. He understood that God is holy, God is righteous, God is good, God is powerful. And he says, don't you, don't you fear this God? This God is powerful. This God is amazing. This God is holy. Don't you fear him? But secondly, and this is amazing, the second thing we see about the thief is he owned up to his own personal sin. He doesn't try to brush his sin under the carpet. He doesn't try to cover it up. He doesn't try to minimize it. He doesn't try to somehow hide it or justify it. He openly acknowledges his personal sin against this God. Notice what he says. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Verse 41. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. We're hanging on this cross because we are criminals. We have done wrong. We are sinners. I'm not going to downplay my sin. I'm not going to cover up my sin. I'm going to openly confess and own up to my own personal sin. David says in Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Let's say, for example, an intruder broke into your home, murdered your family and your children. You are left with no family because a murderer came in and took everything away from you. And now it's time for sentencing, and you go to the courtroom where the judge is going to render a verdict. 
And you're sitting there in the courtroom and you're weeping and you're waiting for this judge to be just, this judge to be good, this judge to make a good judgment. And so the time for sentencing comes and you, everything's been lost. And the murderer comes up to the bench and the judge says to the murderer, please don't ever do this again. I'm going to fine you $5, give you a slap on the wrist, go have a nice day. How would you feel at that moment? you would probably be seething in anger that that judge was unjust. You would never want that judge to render a verdict ever again on the bench. He is not a good judge. He's not serving justice. He let a murderer get off with nothing. Now, how much more just is God, the God of the universe? If we don't want human judges to be that way, how much more do we, do we want God to be that way? God is just. God must punish sin. God must deal with sin. God doesn't just brush sin under the carpet. He is a holy God. He's a good God. He's a just God. And this thief on the cross recognizes that. Here you have a thief hanging there next to Jesus. He owns his own personal sin. He realizes that God is holy. And thirdly, he recognizes the sinless innocence of Christ. He sees in Jesus an innocent Savior. Notice what he says there in verse 41. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. This man is innocent. Jesus is suffering on the cross as an innocent man. As a matter of fact, three times Pilate said, he is innocent. I find no fault in him. Three times Pilate had an opportunity to commute or to get rid of Jesus' sentence and let him go. But Pilate was a coward, gave in to the crowd, and Jesus died on the cross as an innocent Savior, suffering as a sinless sacrifice. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus is because, because he's without sin, it qualifies him to go to the cross and be our perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 7.26, For indeed it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens speaking of Jesus. So here you have this man that's dying. He understands the holiness of God. He understands his own personal sin. He, he knows that Jesus is the sinless Savior. But fourthly, he trusts in Christ's power as the sovereign king to save him. Do you, do you recognize what the, what the thief is saying? Look at verse 42. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. When you come into your kingdom. Now this is so ironic because this is not the way a king dies. This is Jesus' ultimate moment of weakness. He's hanging naked and helpless on a cross. He does not look like a king. A king is on a throne. A king is on a horse. A king does not die naked and shameful on a cross. And yet, there's a sign above his head that says, this is the king of the Jews. And, and this, this criminal looks at Jesus in this moment of weakness, in this arm stretched out on the cross, dying for the sins of his people. And he looks at this, at this Christ and says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Jesus, you are 
the king. Now, how is Jesus going to come in his kingdom? What's it going to look like? Well, Revelation 19 tells us, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's how Jesus is coming in his kingdom. Now on the cross, he's dying and suffering, but on his second coming, he's coming as a king, and the thief says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. When you come as sovereign king, remember me. Fifthly, his simple request. His simple request showed great humility and repentance. What does this thief ask? What does he say? All he says is, remember me. He doesn't ask to be taken off the cross. He didn't ask for his sentence to be commuted. He doesn't bargain with Jesus for a miracle. He doesn't say, Jesus, if you just let me down this one time, I promise I'll never, 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 ever, ever sin again. He just simply says, remember me. It was enough for this dying man to humbly bow before the king and say, would you remember me? Would you remember me? It was simple trust and the power of Christ to save him. Which leads us to the sixth issue. The thief was powerless to do anything. What could this thief do? Did his good works some way outweigh his bad works? Think about this thief. He never got a chance to go to church. He never got baptized. He never took the Lord's Supper or communion. He never gave an offering. He did not have a chance to do anything to somehow prove his worth to Christ and earn his salvation. He was powerless. All he could do was turn and trust in this Christ and say, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He's powerless. He could not boast. When he got to heaven, could the thief on the cross boast and say, I've done some great things for God? No. He could not. And Paul tells us we cannot. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no man may boast. Seventh. The seventh thing we see about the thief on the cross. His soul went immediately to be with Jesus in heaven. Listen to the powerful words of what Jesus says to him. There in verse 43. He says... Today, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I don't want to get in a whole discussion on where paradise is and all that kind of stuff. I take it to mean that it doesn't matter where paradise is. What I take is today you will be what? With me. So wherever Jesus is, that's where I want to be. Probably heaven. I think it's heaven. But here's the amazing thing about the thief on the cross. that shows the grace of God. Think about this thief for a moment. He bows to the absolute sovereignty of God. He owns his own personal sin. He is powerless to do anything. He recognizes the innocence of Christ. He submits himself to the kingship of the king. He recognizes that Jesus is sovereign all before what? What happens next in the text? 
This is before the darkness. This is before the earthquake. This is before the temple veil being torn in two. And this is before the resurrection. All these things the thief does before Christ has even come out from the tomb. So what does that tell us on this side of the resurrection? How much more should we worship this king because he's risen from the dead? What's our response to Jesus? Do we ridicule him? Do we mock him? Do we ignore him? Do we think, oh, Jesus, you're a genie in a bottle. Jesus, you're convenient. When I want you, I will put you up on a shelf. And when I need you and I want you, I'll take you off the shelf, put you in my back pocket and carry you around like you're my little friend when I need you. How do we treat Jesus? Or are we like the thief? The thief said, I'm coming in brokenness. I'm coming in humility. I'm coming with nothing to contribute. I'm coming in powerlessness. I'm coming and I'm owning up my sin. I'm not covering up my sin. I'm confessing my sin. I'm casting myself at this king and my simple request is remember me. I trust in you as king. And yet the story of Jesus is not complete without the resurrection. Today is Resurrection Sunday, so let's continue reading the story as, as Glenn read for us this morning in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. Let's read about the resurrection. Luke chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told them these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. It's Sunday morning. The women go to the tomb. The stone is rolled away. Two angels appear to them. They say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's risen. Don't you remember what he said? He had to be crucified. He had to suffer God's wrath. He had to die on the cross. Three days later, rise again. The gospel is not complete without the resurrection. Jesus had to rise from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 13-14, Paul says this, If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So if Jesus did not rise from the dead, why are we here? Why am I up here preaching? Why do you have faith in Jesus? Why are you a Christian? If he's not risen from the dead, it means nothing. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Peter runs to the empty tomb. And what's his response? He marveled. He marveled. That word's an interesting word in the original language. It means to be amazed at. Your jaw drops open. You're astonished. 
You're taken back by the glory of the empty tomb. You're taken back. You're astonished. You're marveling at the fact that Christ rose from the dead. You believe it with all of your heart. You bow down to this king and you confess him and worship him alone. Are you marveling at Jesus this morning? There are two statements that Jesus makes while he's hanging on the cross that have powerful implications for every single person in this room. These two statements that Jesus gives on the cross will probably be the most important words you will ever hear come off the lips of anybody who's ever lived in all of history. These two words that Jesus says are for you this morning, the difference between life and death, your eternal destiny hangs in the balance by the words of Christ on the cross. What are these two words? Go back up and look at verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you believe that Jesus Christ on the cross offers every single one of you here this morning complete forgiveness, every sin, past, present, and future can be totally wiped out, your sins can be forgiven, and you can be restored into a right relationship with God. Psalm 133-4 says this, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Think about the sins being projected up upon the screen. If God kept a record of every single sin you've ever did, who in the world could stand before this God? And the answer is none of us could. If our sins were confronted to us, we would be crushed. But what does the psalm say and what does Jesus say when he's on the cross? Father, forgive them. So if you're here this morning and you have some sin in your life, and I hope that includes everybody here, The hope of Easter is that your sins can be forgiven. And you can hear from the lips of Jesus while he's hanging on that cross, Father, forgive them. That's the first word you can hear this morning is you can have forgiveness. The second powerful statement Jesus made, we've already looked at, but it's in verse 43. It's what he said to the thief on the cross. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you can have eternal life with Jesus. The two statements are so simple, but they're so profound. You can be forgiven and you can have heaven. It's not a matter of if you're going to have eternal life. Do you realize that every single person in here is going to have eternal life? It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of where. Where are you going to spend eternal life? There are only two options. There's no middle ground. There's no in-between. It's either heaven or it's hell. And that thief on the cross got to hear the words, today you will be with me in paradise. Would that every single person in this room leaves today hearing the words, your sins are forgiven, and today, if you were to die, you will be with Jesus in heaven. Hebrews 9, 27-28 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You're appointed to die once, and after that, to face the judgment. There is no second chance. Father, forgive them. 
for they know not what they do. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, Christ stands ready to receive all who would come to him. But how do you come to Christ? You come like the thief. You come in brokenness. You come in humility. You come in powerlessness. You come in desperation. You come and you, you own your sin. You don't hide your sin. You confess your sin. You come and you, you surrender to the king that's going to come back in his kingdom. And you come and you fear this God. And you say, remember me, Jesus. I can't boast. I can't do anything. I'm powerless. All I can do is simply trust in what you've done. What better hope than to hear today these two things. Your sins can all be forgiven and you can have a permanent home in heaven. Are you like Peter? Are you marveling at the sight of the empty tomb? Are you marveling at Jesus Christ on the cross? He is the all-sufficient Savior who stands arms open wide, ready to receive all who would come to him. And if you look close, you will see the scars in his hands and his feet to prove that he rose from the dead. He's got the scars to prove it. And whatever scars you brought in here this morning, because a lot of us have scars, a lot of us have sin, a lot of us have pain, a lot of us have brokenness, a lot of us have guilt, a lot of us have shame, and the hope of Easter is you can come into this place with those scars and yet leave different. You can leave changed. You can leave restored. You can leave healed. You can leave forgiven. You can leave cleansed. You can leave washed. You can leave with the hope to know that when you get to heaven, you will hear those glorious words of Jesus. Father, I've forgiven them. They can be with me today in paradise. You can go from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. You can go from being guilty to being forgiven and accepted. You can go from being in bondage to being released. You can go from a life of idolatry to a life of purpose through Christ and his cross. So this morning on this Resurrection Sunday, I would ask you to marvel, be astonished, be awestruck. Let your jaw draw open at the empty tomb. Marvel at the fact that God saved the thief on the cross. Marvel that God can forgive you. Marvel that God can offer you a home in heaven. Marvel at Jesus. He's far superior than anything this world has to offer. Marvel at the majesty the power, the beauty, the glory, the superior value of King Jesus. What better day than Easter 2012 to be like this thief on the cross and say, remember me when you come in your kingdom and to hear the words, today you will be with me in paradise. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And there may be many of you in this room who have never, ever trusted Christ alone for salvation. You've never owned up to your sin. You've tried to cover it up. You've tried to minimize it. You've tried to legitimize it. You've tried to justify it, but you've never owned up to it and confessed it and realized that you need salvation. 
There may be many of you in this room that have never recognize Jesus as king. You, you think of him as maybe a good teacher or maybe as someone that to be admired, but you've never bowed your knee to him to rule and reign over your life and submit to him as the king. And maybe you're here this morning and you do have some serious scars. You've just been broken and beaten up by the world and you need to hear the, the hope of Easter that there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Whatever needs to happen this morning, God is here to meet with sinners. And I said that very carefully. God is here to meet with sinners. If you think you're good, if you think you don't need God, that's where the problem starts. Jesus didn't come to take care of those that are good. He came to take care of those that need help, and all of us are sinners. So would you come to this Christ this morning? Would you confess your need for this Christ this morning? Would you cry out like the thief did, remember me when you come in your kingdom? Would you spend time this morning? Talking to this God in your heart. Maybe asking him to forgive you for the very first time are coming to him again time and time to find renewed strength and grace because he has already forgiven your sins and you already know you're going to be with him in heaven. You just need to spend some time worshiping him this morning. Whatever you need to do, take these few moments of silence to commune with your Savior. Father, my prayer is that uh, nobody leaves this room this morning without knowing for certain that their sins are forgiven and that they have a home in heaven. Father, my prayer is that all of us in this room would be like the thief on the cross and we'd come in humility and brokenness and desperation and powerlessness and confess you as our king and trust in your power to save. Lord, I pray that you would grant forgiveness to many in this room this morning for the very first time. Father, I pray that nobody would leave this room without the assurance of knowing that when they do die, they will go be with you in heaven. And Lord, if they need to linger, if they need to struggle, if they have a crisis in their life, if they need to, to work things out, Lord, I pray that they would have the time and the courage and the, and the Holy Spirit, you'd give them the, the motivation and the, and the, and the, and the um, attention to be able to do that. They wouldn't just walk out of this place and say, well, Easter's done. I did that, I checked it off my list, now I can go do whatever I need to do. But that they would take advantage of this moment, this time. Holy Spirit, would you please work in a way that only you can. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.